Let's just bow, shall we, in a moment of prayer together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love, your mercy to us. Thank you for the privilege that we have of serving you. We pray that as we search your word tonight concerning those things that relate to the matter of discipleship, we pray that we may have responsive hearts, that we might be ready to hear and to heed what you have to say to us. We'll give you the glory for that in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we again, just so that we pick up on this, we've studied already the subject of discipleship as taught by the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel accounts. Now, we're looking in the book of Acts to see how it was carried out in the early church. Uh, we, after this, will go ahead and and talk then about some practical dimensions of discipleship, some ways that we can actually get involved in this ministry. We've been laying this foundation for a reason and purpose, and uh, we want to get the biblical perspective on this so that there's no misunderstanding as to what we do when we are involved in the ministry of discipleship. And so we've been talking about a number of aspects of discipleship topically from the book of Acts, and... um, uh, we have talked about the spirit and disciples, the discipleship, soul winning and discipleship, service and discipleship, stewardship and discipleship. And tonight we want to turn to the 19th chapter of the book of Acts and uh, focus in upon a passage of scripture uh, that I think is, is really vital as far as our understanding of the, the matter of church ministry and discipleship and all of those things. And because it is such a vital passage... We want to read, beginning in verse 1, and read uh, the first 20 verses of the chapter. So we get the the picture and the setting. We'll maybe interrupt uh, now and then and bring a little word, uh, but uh, for the most part, just reading it through. Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. This, of course, is the founding of the church at Ephesus came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper borders, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Spirit since ye believed? Now, I think we should stop there a moment and just make the explanation that uh, the, the way that the Greek would read here would be literally using the aorist participle, uh, Have you received the Holy Spirit having believed? It's not saying that they were believers at this time. It's the way it sounds in the English uh, here in our uh, authorized version. It makes it sound like, have you received the Holy Spirit since the time that you believed? But what he is really asking is, have you received the Holy Spirit having believed? In other words, did you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which comes at the point of salvation? It wasn't a subsequent experience after salvation, but rather he's saying, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Now notice the response then. They said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there's any Holy Spirit. They, of course, didn't have any experience with the Holy Spirit because they hadn't even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? In other words, you're, you're meeting together in what seemed to be a group of true believers. They certainly had belief in one God, and uh, they certainly were different than the ordinary Jew. And so what's the, what's the deal here? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Ah, the light goes on. 
These people had believed in the ministry of John the Baptist, but they didn't know anything about Jesus Christ. Then Paul said, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him who should come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Probably speaking here of water baptism, and uh, it's the only rebaptism that we have recorded. But it does give warrant, of course, to the fact that if a person was baptized before he was a believer, he certainly needs to be baptized after he becomes a believer. The other baptism only did one thing for him, just got him wet, that's all. And uh, so therefore, he needed, they needed to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then verse 6, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannius, made tents in the daytime, uh, probably from daybreak until about 11 o'clock in the morning, and then from 11 o'clock in the morning till 4 o'clock in the afternoon he taught in the school of Tyrannius. And this continued for the space of two years, so that all they who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. There were seven sons, one Siva, Siva a Jew, and a chief of the priests who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and uh, overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of those also who used magical arts brought their books together and burned them before all. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver, about $10,000. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in, his, in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. All right? Now, that passage of Scripture is got a, it's got a lot of lessons in it. We'll be touching on some of those as we go through. But the major thing that we want to emphasize is the key verse for our study, verse 9. But when some were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of that way before the multitude, he, Paul, departed from them and, here's a key word, separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannius. There came a time in the ministry of Paul in the city of Ephesus 
when because of Jewish opposition and the rejection of the truth of God, it became necessary to, di- to separate the disciples who had responded from the people who had not responded and begin a program of instruction. Now, the, the background of this was that when Paul came to the city of Ephesus, he did as he usually did. He began in the synagogue to minister. Let's look at some passages just to support the fact that Paul believed what he said in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 when he said that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul felt a commitment, though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he felt a commitment to first of all go to the Jew. And so when he would visit a new place, he would visit the uh, the synagogue first. This wasn't only his pattern. This was the pattern of the early apostles. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple, the city of Jerusalem. Not a synagogue here, but the temple, <clears throat> the main place of worship. And they did it at the hour of prayer when there would be people there, being the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the evening sacrifice. And then Acts chapter 5 and verse 42. This establishes a pattern for these people in the early church. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Now they had something going in both places, but they preached daily in the temple. And then Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 and verse 20. And immediately he preached Christ. This would be Saul in Damascus. Uh, Saul who was Paul. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues. What did he preach? He emphasized there the deity of Jesus Christ. That he is the, the son of God. Acts chapter 13 and verse 5. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John as their helper, or literally their under rower. And then verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down. Chapter 14. And verse 1, it came to pass in Iconium that when they were, uh, went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. And then Acts chapter 17, Acts 17, verses 1 and 2, when they passed through Amphipolis and uh, Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where was the synagogue of the Jews. 16th chapter, they were in Philippi, and there was no synagogue there. But uh, here in the city of Thessalonica, there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. And then, of course, uh, the verse 10 as well. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming there went into the synagogue of the Jews. And then, of course, our passage, 
Acts 19, verse 8, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months. Now, the pattern then of the early church was to take the gospel to the Jews first. This was the thing that Christ had said they were to do. You realize that the, the order that he gave was that they begin in Jerusalem. And then all Judea and Samaria, and then finally to the uttermost parts. Those were, those were the four areas that they were to reach out to. You recall in the early church, the, the first ministry was in the city of Jerusalem, exclusive of anything else. And then it began with the persecution, the death of James. It began spreading out to Judea, to the area around Jerusalem. And remember, Philip had a ministry in uh, Samaria. And, uh, and then the, the gospel continued to be scattered. And ultimately, the apostle Paul was the instrument that God used to carry the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. But in each case, wherever they went, they first of all tried to reach the Jews of those communities. And so we need to realize, now that's a pattern of the early church. That, was not, that is not necessarily a pattern for us today. It was a re- recording of what happened historically. And remember that God gave a, a true offering of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to the nation of Israel when he was here upon earth. And they refused him, they rejected him, and they crucified him. And then after the rejection of Christ, God gave the Jews a second opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ. Because the message came first to the Jew. And this was in keeping with all of the Old Testament prophecies. And even their rejection was. And their continued rejection was. And yet most of the early Christians, those that believed, Most of those were Jews. And then, of course, the gospel was clearly released, if you please, to go to the Gentile nations as well and take that word to the uttermost parts of the earth. All right, so Paul came to the city of Ephesus and followed his usual pattern. Notice that he spent three months in the synagogue ministering there. He gave every opportunity. It was only three weeks in Thessalonica before they ran him off. And he had no opportunity there. He had to leave town in a hurry. He had no opportunity there to follow through except by means of letter and sending Timothy back and those things. Paul had no opportunity to complete his ministry there. But he would be in the city of Ephesus for two years. He would minister to those people during that period of time. And uh, part of it would have to do with this matter of separation. All right? Now, Paul's message, the substance of Paul's message, is really found here in verse 8. He went into the synagogue, and what did he do? Well, it says he spoke boldly, and then it says that he, he disputed and persuaded the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a very broad term. If we could think of it in in the sense of being a a broad, general term, the kingdom of God, included under the title of the kingdom of God was, of course, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven seems to pertain 
primarily to the future hope of the nation of Israel. It has inclusion of other things, but that seems to be the major thrust of the kingdom of heaven. It is a part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God also includes the sphere of salvation. The whole idea of why Jesus Christ came and uh, his death and all of the rest of it. And then it also is the sphere of the lordship of Christ. All right? Now, all of that has to do with the kingdom of God. And uh, no doubt, Paul would begin with these people and uh, in, in the way that he uh, dialogued with them to some degree there in the synagogue, he would probably ask them, do you believe that there is a kingdom yet to come? Do you believe that there is one that yet would come and sit upon the throne of David and rightfully take his place? And of course, he would get immediate assent from these people. Yes, they believed in that. And then from there, he would launch a message concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Incidentally, not a bad way to witness to Jews today. Not a bad way at all. One of the things that I like to do when I get in an opportunity to witness to a Jewish person who doesn't understand the gospel is commit them concerning the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of times that's difficult because a lot of Jewish people have even rejected that idea. But if they have any interest in what the Old Testament teaches at all, you can develop something concerning the fact that there will be a kingdom here upon this earth. A kingdom that really is not, a, not merely an earthly kingdom, but it is in a sense the heavenly kingdom come down to earth because indeed Jesus Christ is the, the, the king of that kingdom and he is the heavenly person, the Son of God. And uh, then show them how the book of Isaiah clearly teaches the concept of the kingdom that is to come. And then teaches that the king has to suffer first. When he turned to Isaiah 53 and began to develop the concepts concerning Jesus Christ, there taught, you ask yourself, this is clearly speaking of the king. Now, let me ask you a question. Who do you suppose this would be? And thereby, many times you can point a person, using the concept of the kingdom, you can point a person to a knowledge of the Savior. Christ, in his ministry, here upon this earth, over and over again talked of the kingdom of God and of the kingdom of heaven. And it, it included, in that idea of the kingdom of heaven, it, it, it included the concept and the idea of a literal reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. All right, so Paul used this method that would speak of all of these things. What he said first and how he said it, we're not told. But we can well imagine how he must have proceeded in winning these Jews to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. But now the scope of this message, not only the substance of it, but the scope of the message is very important as well. Look at verse 10, if you will. It says, this continued for the space of two years so that all, notice that word, all they who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And I just have to say that when we are following a divine pattern, when we are following the leading of God's Holy Spirit in regard to the ministry of the church, the result will be the community being aware of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can't help but have that effect. And then, of course, 
It, it says in verse 13 these words. It says that the, even the exorcists, uh, vagabond Jews, traveling minstrels, if you please, uh, were uh, the exorcists took upon themselves to call over them, them who had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus. Now they were even trying to get into the act because they could see that that was very, very effective. And so therefore, how did they say it? Notice now, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. In other words, even in the occult community, Paul's name, preaching Jesus, was a byword. Not interesting? As far as we know, Paul had no direct contact with these people. He may, they may have come into the synagogue, but it's not likely. They were the outcast type of Jews. They weren't the ones that would visit the synagogue. They were those that were involved in the magical arts and the occults. And so therefore, they, were, they, they probably didn't come into the temple at all. And so they, they went on the basis of reputation. I mean, this was headlines. This was front page news. The scope of the message reaching out to, to each person. Then look at verse 17. It says, The great fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. That is, by the subsequent events that took place, there, the, the demon responding uh, by attacking those exorcists, that the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And then verse 20. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now, I'm sure that each and every one of us, as we are faced with the, with the, the need of the hour, I'm sure that the things that characterized the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus those things that we've mentioned, those are the most important, more important than the healing, more important than the casting out of demons, more important than the speaking in tongues. The thing that really was important was Christ was magnified, the Word of God prevailed, Jesus was, uh, had a, and Paul, his servant, had a reputation in the community for that which God was doing, and all of Asia heard the word of God, a tremendous witness. Those were the really the important things that took place. And I'm sure that all of us would want that, would covet that for our own church, that we might be effective in that way, so that there be really an impact upon the community. So, in other words, Paul, in his message, presented the, the truth of God's sovereignty over the whole earth, that he was Lord, and therefore had the crown rights to each individual life. And uh, he, he demonstrated to those people how that related to the full revelation of God in Christ Jesus. And as he shared that message, there was a marvelous impact upon the community where he was. Now that's basically the message that Paul had. It's also interesting to note the method that he used. It says that he went into the synagogue. Again, the idea of going to the Jew first. And then it says he spoke boldly. Now, the word is P-A-R-R-H-E-S-I-A-Z-O-M-I. There's one for you, okay? Simply means to speak with assurance, to speak with clarity, to speak with confidence. 
it, it, it's, it's the idea really of, the, of Paul's words being on fire with certainty. It rested on the fact there was no doubts. The three words that I think of when we think of this word, there first of all was the idea of firmness, and then fearlessness, and then finality. Now the Apostle Paul was one who spoke with authority. And one who had the authority of being an apostle spoke with the authority of speaking the very word of God. And as a result, he spoke what he said was a, was a firm message. He did it with fearlessness. And he did it with a finality. There was no real arguing about what the Apostle Paul had to say. And so he went to the Jew first, and then he spoke boldly. And then it says that he did it for three months. In other words, it was a very patient instruction. Paul wasn't one, even though he was dogmatic in what he said, and even though he was firm, and he, he, he spoke with a, with a finality to everything he said, yet Paul was not one to do something rashly. He did not deal rashly with these people. Uh, I think so often today, you know, of the evangelist that goes in and uh, he preaches the message and says, okay, you've had it. If you don't pay attention to it, I'm going to shake the dust off my feet and I'm going to go to the next town. You know, that kind of an attitude. Now, Paul wasn't that way. There may be a place for that. There may be a time for that. But the time, as far as Paul was concerned, was to be spent in teaching these people and patiently instructing them. And then it says he also disputed. He disputed. Now, here's a word. D-I-A-L-E-G-O-M-A-I. And you see the word lego in there. You see the word legomai. Uh, dialegomai is legos or logos to speak. And then dia means uh, in, in, a different, in a different way. That is uh, two ways, literally, to divide in two. And so, therefore, it's the idea of, of divided speech. It's the concept, if you please, of uh, expressing different things and thus arguing, to argue. Now, it just simply means that when someone would bring forth a concept and an idea, Paul would come with an answer. Remember, Peter tells us that we are to be ready always to give an answer to every man that, that, that uh, uh, asketh concerning the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. When people would raise their questions, Paul would answer their questions. He would meet head-on with the Word of God every dispute that arose. And that's the concept of what happened here. In Acts 17, we have a, a sample of dispute, if you please. Look at uh, Acts 17, verses 1 through 3. Here's an idea of the kind of the way the Apostle Paul would would reason the scriptures. And when he had passed through Amphipolis and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. Okay, now get this, that Christ must needs have suffered. 
There wasn't a single person in the world who didn't, or in the Jewish synagogue, in the Jewish world, who did not believe in Christ. Did you hear me? They all believed in Christ. They did not believe Jesus was Christ. They did not believe that Christ had to suffer. But they believed in Christ. They were yet looking for Christ, yet to come. All right? And so he comes into that situation, and they said, here's a point of agreement. Tremendous way to witness. On what can we agree? Well, we all agree that Christ, the anointed one of God, is going to come and rule and reign. We all agree about that. No problem. Paul said, all right, now let me show you. I'm going to prove to you that Christ, who you look for, must, first of all, suffer. Isaiah 53. That is a dispute. Paul was disputing with them there. He says that Christ must, needs, have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Now that's the the kind of dispute that the Apostle Paul got into. In other words, he wasn't arguing philosophy primarily. He was not arguing, although he used it, Mars Hill, you remember, he used the philosophies of that day to give an entrance to the gospel. He was not beyond doing that. But he didn't sit there and just have a petty argument. That's not the idea at all. But rather, it was a very planned uh, clearing up of questions in the minds of other people. He would disagree with them without being disagreeable. And he would give to them the facts of the gospel in the process. All right? Then it also says that he persuaded. It's also in verse 8. It says that he persuaded. Now here our word. Started right in the Greek here. Let's go with P-E-I-T-H-O. Patheo. And uh, patho is to persuade. To persuade. It, it actually means to prevail upon. In other words, he prevailed upon them to bring them to belief to bring them to obedience, to bring about a change of their mind because they didn't believe that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be. In other words, this word would lead us to believe that Paul, when he preached, preached for decisions. He was preaching for decisions. He was faithfully preaching the word of God and demanding that the people make up their minds. He was preaching so that a verdict would be received. That's the kind of thing, of course, that Josh McDowell has in his two books. Evidence that demands a verdict. Paul presented evidence in such a way that they had to decide one way or another. But as he preached, there was a mixed response. Verse 9 spells it out. When some were hardened and believed not but spoke evil of that way before the multitude, then he had to take different action. Now the word hardened is an action of the heart, and the word actually means to make dry or hard. The word is S-K-L, long E, R-U-N-O, long O. Look over at uh, Hebrews 3 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 
Verse 8. Harden not your hearts. Verse 7 says, Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the days of the trial in the wilderness. In other words, like the nation of Israel did when they provoked God. Then verse 13, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now there's an important verse. Exhortation daily. Daily. Why? It's dangerous living in this world. That's why. It's dangerous. You are going to be faced with the deceitfulness of of sin. And sin is going to fool you and you're going to fall prey unless you have have clearly the fellowship of believers that will constantly keep you on your toes. Now we've I'm afraid that the church of Jesus Christ by and large has lost its cutting edge in that way. Problem is that we all in the church have a tendency to hide behind masks. We don't, have, we don't have the kind of loving fellowship that becomes really a, a pricking of our own conscience in our fellowship together. We're all afraid to say things to other people. But my friend, we have a responsibility if somebody is out of line and not walking in fellowship with Christ, we have a responsibility to, to talk to him about that. Now that doesn't mean in any sense that we talk to others about him. We go directly to Him. But we do that because it's easy for others, uh, and it's easy for you as well, to lose your balance and equilibrium in a world that is so overbalanced in the area of sin. It'll deceive us. There's a gross danger in that regard. Verse 15, While it is said, Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. Look again, Hebrews 4, verse 7. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now, you get the idea that God is trying to get away, get through to these Hebrew Christians, that they shouldn't allow their heart to become dry or hard. It's the idea of a, of a, of a caking uh, of, the, of the ground in the hot sun, that kind of hardness. It's talking about here. Now, the interesting thing is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is like sunlight on the soil, if the, uh, or sunlight on material, shall I say. If, you, if you're working with clay, what will the sun do? The sun will harden. If you're working with wax, what will the sun do? Soften. Now, let me ask you, is it the sun's fault? Is it the sun's fault that the clay is hardened? No, the material is wrong. And the thing about the human heart is, you have the privilege of setting your heart to be clay or to be wax. You have that privilege. You have that choice. You tonight, as you hear what we have said up to this time, you have already decided 
whether you will be clay or be wax. You maybe didn't know the theology behind it, but you did You did set yourself. You said in your mind, oh, I, don't, I don't think I buy that. And you chose to be clay rather than be wax. And by reason of that choice, you can, therefore, harden your heart. And it's interesting, in the case of Pharaoh in the Old Testament, you ever notice that it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says God hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. Over and over again. Now, incidentally, there are two words, two different words that are used for hardened there in the Old Testament text. That's very important, very precise meaning to that. But the idea was that it depends on whether where you happen to be looking. Because, you see, the sun, the sun up here sending forth its rays, if you're looking at the sun, you have to say that the sun hardened the clay. But if you're looking at what the person is putting out into the sun, wax or clay, then you would say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. See what I'm saying? And so you see, it's your choice. And every time you hear the message of the gospel, Every time you hear the, the teaching of the Word of God, you are faced with a choice. Are you wax or clay? You see, the tragedy of it is that sometimes we don't like a message. I get that all the time, you know. In fact, a lot of messages I preach I don't like, you know. I told you that before, man. I've got I to gotta have that for hours and hours of my study, and I dump it on you in an hour, and you're free. I got to live with the thing, and then I got I got about a, a, you know fifty or sixty people for sure that are going to remind me of it. Nobody else does. My wife does, you know, all week long. Honey, remember what you said Sunday? You know, so I, you know, I mean, you know, I've got that double conscience constantly. But you see, the idea is that that you and I have a choice. Now, I don't expect you to like every message you hear. In fact, I expect you not to like a lot of them. And the more that you don't like, the better off we are. Because, you see, it means that, that the, the Holy Spirit is finding those areas in your life that need, that need prying loose. All right? But the choice as to whether that message benefits you or not is really yours. Will it indeed be a wax so that the, the heat that the Holy Spirit puts on you will soften you and make you more like Jesus Christ, conform to the image of Christ? Or will it be hard, turning away from the truth and turning on to fables? That, of course, is the next step that takes place when a person does harden his heart. All right? And then it says, they believed not. Now, the, the word believe here is the word A-P-E-I-T-H-E-I-A. Now, pitheo is a word that is negated by the, the A in front of it, but it, it really is an inter- has an interesting connotation. We think of, we think of the word believe. And I don't know what you conjure up in your mind, but most people immediately when you say believe, thinking about a mind 
thinking in terms of, of accepting something mentally. That's not the meaning of the word. And the word in its full connotation has some tremendous thoughts, but it really is the idea of trust. The idea of trust. Now, what's the difference between trust and belief? Let me use a, an illustration. If you just walked into this room as a total stranger tonight, I could, uh, I could ask you a very simple question. I could say, you see these pews. Do you believe that those pews will hold your weight? Well, now, a person can say, yes, I believe it until he's blue in the face. But the question is, does he really believe it? Each one of you tonight proved that you believe because you trusted the pew and you sat down in it. And you see, the concept, the concept of belief in the New Testament is not a matter of saying, yeah, I believe it. You know, God to that kind of faith says, big deal. So you say you believe it. That doesn't mean a thing. What you do is put your weight on it. And you see, the concept in the Old Testament, the various words that were used, always implied that kind of action. Do you know the root of this word really means to obey? To obey? Now that's a tough one. You say, obey what? Well, the, the obedience involved in faith is simply putting your weight upon what you say you believe. That's the concept. And we need to understand that and know that. These people rejected that. I suppose there were a lot of things Paul said that they thought, boy, you know, he's a pretty good speaker. And uh, not only that, he's got some good points. But it, when it came to the matter of actually taking their weight and placing it on Jesus Christ, they wouldn't do it. I remember, remember Blondine, uh, the French tightrope walker, uh, in the years of depression. Everybody's looking, of course, for, for a, uh, uh, some, something entertaining to happen. And a lot of those entertainers got pretty wealthy doing a lot of stunts. What he did was he put a cable across Niagara Falls. And, uh, and then he, he went out on the cable and, and he did all kinds of stunts. Uh, the, the people that uh, wrote concerning him say that, that he uh, regularly would go out on a thing like this and sit there with a one-legged stool and a one-legged table and eat his lunch while hanging and swaying, even in the wind, between uh, or right above the falls. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's got to give somebody indigestion. I mean, somehow or another. But, but that's what he would do. And, uh, and he, he would uh, go across with a wheelbarrow. And the crowd would cheer as he made his way across and so on. And he would ask the people. He would say, all right, how many of you believe I can wheel a man across in a wheelbarrow? Everybody, yay! Hey, who'll be first? Everybody in the place mentally believed. But nobody get in the wheelbarrow. And see, that makes all the difference in the world. And the faith of the Bible means getting in the wheelbarrow. It doesn't mean works. 
It doesn't even imply works. In fact, it implies quite the opposite. Believe me, if you're standing there saying, I believe, I believe, I believe, there's a lot more works to that than sitting down and resting. It's a matter of rest. And so, as a result, what they're saying is they refuse to trust Christ. They refuse to put their weight on Jesus Christ. That is disobedience then. As far as the gospel was concerned, they had the opportunity, but they rejected that opportunity. But then, not only that, they also spoke evil. There was the attack that came to the Apostle Paul personally. Notice that, that it says uh, that uh, he persuaded them concerning the kingdom of God, but there were some who were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of that way before the multitude. Now, the word here is K-A-K-O-L-O-G-E-O. Kakos is the word for evil. And then to speak or to say. To say evil. In other words, to curse. And as a result of these three things, hardened hearts, a refusal to trust... And ultimately, speaking evil, saying, saying the, the opposite, contradicting, not just Paul, but contradicting that way. That's an interesting definition of Christianity. It is that way. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There was only one way of salvation. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And that way was being presented by these disciples. And as a result, they said no, and they spoke against, they contradicted and spoke evil of that way. In other words, they were blasphemous of the message itself. All right, so now that gives you an idea of the background. The result, though, is that the Apostle Paul brought about division. Isn't that terrible? A church split. Isn't that awful? I mean, after all now... uh, Shouldn't all believers just get together and, and be one big happy family? I mean, should whatever we do, we wouldn't want doctrine to divide us. I mean, isn't the law of Christ love? And as a result of, of love, shouldn't there be just, a, just a, a standard of love so that no matter what anybody says or no matter what anybody believes, we can just, everybody just love everybody. Isn't that right? McGee says that's sloppy agape. That's exactly what it is. I, I'm hearing this more and more. Don't let doctrine divide. And I want to go on record right now to say that true biblical doctrine does divide. And Christ said that in one sense that he came to bring a sword. That's not very nice. But you see, when the Word of God is taught as it is in truth, the Word of God, it does bring division. And it's a proper division. Now, mind you, this is not over some petty thing. It is over, clearly, a departure from true orthodoxy. A departure from true historic doctrine. And there was division. And you see, there were people 
in the, in the synagogue. Paul had a good thing going here. Why would he do what he did? It says that when some were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of that way before the multitude, he deserted that multitude and he departed from them and separated who? The disciples. Now, mind you, we have already talked a great deal about what discipleship involves. In other words, he took aside and separated those who meant business. Not only those who had said, yeah, I'm a believer, but those who really meant business. And he separated the disciples and got involved with them. Now, there's reasons for it. One reason was to avoid physical violence. They had experienced such hatred and hostility in other places, such as Thessalonica, and Paul's ministry as a result was terminated. He was run out of town on a rail. They, they took Jason, remember, who lived alongside the synagogue. They took him captive and they said, Paul, if you don't leave, then you're, we're going to give trouble to this fellow. And Paul, out of appreciation for that man, uh, left. He didn't want here to, per, to prematurely curtail his involvement in this city. He wanted to carry on a ministry. So when Paul was separated then from the Jewish community, it was in a real sense a judgment upon those who opposed the gospel. When the true believers move out of a setting where apostasy is being taught or where there's false doctrine and is being accepted or where there is a criticism of true doctrine, when the true believers move out from that sort of thing, then it is a sign of judgment upon those that remain. We've seen this time after time. We've seen times, in, perhaps in some of the major denominations, where it seems like years go by, where it just kind of flounders, and false doctrine continues to get more and more of a foothold. And then one day somebody went too far. And the separation came, and the true believers got out. And when they did, the demise of that group was right around the corner a sense of judgment upon those people as a result. All right? Look at Matthew chapter uh, 7 for a moment. Matthew chapter 7. And verse 6. Give not that which is holy... Onto the dogs. Boy, that's tough language. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and lacerate you. Did you hear that? That's Christ. This is the Sermon on the Mount, incidentally. A lot of people, you know, that like the Sermon on the Mount. Boy, there's one for you. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give that which is holy unto dogs. Now, if you, will, if you were to check over in the book of Philippians, you would see what the, what the Apostle Paul considered to be the dogs. Paul considered those to be dogs who were of the circumcision. That is, teaching law, 
rather than grace. And the church at Philippi was plagued by these individuals. And he said a number of things about them. He said, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. And then he went on from there and, and, and showed that, that they, they gloried in that which they ought to be ashamed of. And that they got excited and rejoiced over the things that gratified themselves. And the world was the limit of their horizon. Those were the characteristics of these dogs. Now you see, there are those who make profession of faith, but yet are in this category. Any, any kind of legalist would have to fall in this category. Paul spoke out clearly against the legalists. And so the same thing that was true of the Jewish community, even, even this community in the synagogue, the same thing would be true of the church at a later time where Paul had to say to the people, Wherefore, come out from among them, out from among them, and be ye separate, and touch not the unclean thing. That we have a responsibility under those conditions to get out where there's false doctrine being taught. All right? Now, the church of Jesus Christ was also, this was the second lesson that was taught, not only to avoid the physical violence, but also to teach that the church of Jesus Christ is a separate society. It's not just a variation of Judaism. People talk about the Judeo-Christian heritage. I often wonder what that is, you know. I know that they're speaking historically and the relationship that there is between Christianity and Judaism because Jesus Christ indeed was a Jew. But I'm afraid that most people don't think of it in terms like that because the church of Jesus Christ is a total, totally separate entity from the Jewish community. So that when a person accepts Jesus Christ, if he is a Jew, he is no longer a Jew. He is now a part of the church. He moves from Judaism to Christianity. And any move back is a compromise in legalism. But if he's a Gentile, he doesn't become a Jew. He also is a part of the church. So that we too are made one. We'll see that in the book of Ephesians. <coughs> With a barrier broken down between the Jew and Gentile. So that they are now one in Christ. A new entity called the church. You've got to remember that in the book of Acts... This concept was emerging. It was something that would be coming to pass. It did not begin that way clearly in the beginning. Because there is in the book of Acts progression. But by hindsight now we can look back with the knowledge of the epistles, particularly the epistle to the uh, church at Ephesus, and we can look back and we can see how, how this was emerging even in this chapter and how there clearly was to be a separate people. And there never was to be a compromise with another religious system. Do you realize what's happening today? The church of Jesus Christ is moving back to a system like this across this way. See, the church being up here, the Jewish community being up here, 
and the Gentile and the Jew in the ecumenical movement trying to get back together. But you see, there's no basis for it because this is a new something that the Spirit of God does in bringing about the church, the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of this and is made up of all true believers. And there's a single unbeliever, no matter how beautiful he is, no matter how religious he is, there's not one single believer in here. There are churches that have non-believers, but the true church of Jesus Christ has only believers. Only believers. And so there needed to be clearly a picture that the disciples of the, of the Lord that were one to Christ here in the city of Ephesus, that they were a new entity. They were not just a variation of the Jewish synagogues. And the disciples met as a church. And they met independent of Jewish worship. And Paul's purpose in beginning in the synagogue was to find soil that was prepared into which he could cast seed. But when it became clear that he had the following for Jesus Christ, he brought about the separation and left the Jewish synagogue behind. There was no union. There was no compromise. There was no cooperation because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a compromising message. It demands clear-cut, dogmatic faith. Dogmatic. Some people don't like that word. But it's a biblical word. Let's not be afraid of it. It is a dogmatic faith. And we need to realize that. And though we may use methods to get the gospel out to other people, nevertheless, we need to have a dogmatic faith that causes separation. I had a person in my office just today. And uh, we saw the, the power of the Word of God to bring division. It's, you know, one of those things. But you see, it was, it was a clear-cut matter. This isn't hard for me to decide. It may be hard to carry out when people cry and all that kind of thing, but it's not hard for me to decide. A girl who's a Christian wanting to marry an unbeliever. And I had to tell her, there's no way. No way. Absolutely no way. Because in doing this, you are disobeying God's word. Clear. No question about it. Showed her the scriptures and all the rest. Now that's difficult. And see, the word of God, again, acting as a sword. So that in a sense, you know, though we don't know the outcome of this situation, but I know this, that either she will be cut off from me, her pastor, or she will be cut off from the unbelieving guy that she wants to marry. There's no way you can compromise that. It's going to be one or the other. It's going to have to be her choice. But the point is that if she chooses him, she's divided. If she chooses God's way, she's divided. It's just as clear as can be. Which will it be? And see, the word of God, it, it, that's, a, that's a hard word now. It's a hard word. And it is a part of the gospel of grace. 
And we're going to see, not next week, but the week following, we're going to see how this worked out in practical reality and the effect of it. And begin to see, really, what we ought to be as a church, as a separate body. We'll try to get to that week after next. Let's pray together. Father, it's difficult to interrupt right in the middle of this very, very important thought. And yet, Lord, we we know that you want us to be searching the Scriptures to see if these things be so. You want us to, to ferret out those things that really should be said and should not be said. And you want us to come to a place in our own lives where we as disciples of Jesus Christ will not be afraid of division that comes when this word will not be compromised. We pray, Lord, that you'll keep us from fear of losing face and keep us from fear of losing friends and keep us, Lord, just in the very hollow of your hand so that we never, never take a stand that on something that is not worth standing on. But help us to stand on the truth and the authority of your word without an inkling of compromise, even if it brings about division. We'll praise you, Lord, for what we know you're going to do in our hearts. We look forward so much to the time of praise and thanksgiving that we'll enjoy next week. We pray that during this busy holiday season that you'll keep all of us clearly in the hollow of your hand, exhorting one another daily, lest we be deceived by sin. We praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.